Hello, I'm Michelle. Hello, I'm Lucy. Thank you for listening to Tutoriferous. And welcome to another cameo episode. These very short episodes <laughs> will be slotted in between the other ones, and we'll cover people who made a fleeting yet tantalizing appearance in other episodes. We don't always have a lot of information on them, so they can't have a full episode of their own, but they are too interesting to abandon completely, and they fill in the gaps and enable us to create as full a picture of the era as we can. And today, the very short episode (laughs) on John Tiptoff. John Tiptoff, who turns out to have an awful lot of information about him. (laughs) But he was going to be an ordinary episode. He was in in our boxes for a while. Yes, he was. But then I spotted a big flaw in having him in there. Oh, it's a mini flaw. He, he died before Henry VII came to the throne. <laughs> and I feel that we're a bit more lax with the cameo ones, so perhaps we, we can allow him a cameo. Yes, and he's been the oh the hidden menace in a few the different episodes. villain, yes. yes. <laughs> Everybody's wondering, like, who is this person? So we have to cover mm. him. I think we do. We do. And in fact, we're covering him in two parts. Is that much information about him? Very short episode. Yes. So, yeah, part one. Tiptoft was the cousin of Richard, Duke of York, and the brother of Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. So he's got good credentials. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's, he's right in there. Yeah, no kidding. Sorry. He's the brother of Richard Neville, but has a different last name? Brother-in-law. Brother-in-law, okay. A Tiptoft came over with William the Conqueror. Although he was called Tiboto then. Oh, why'd they change it? <laughs> Nobody can say it. <laughs> the Tibotos gradually morphing into Tiptoft popped up at many of the big events throughout the Middle Ages. So, you know, quite a big, important family over the long period. Yeah. His father married well, twice, and so increased the lands and standing of the family, and he became Lord Tiptoft and Powys. Which I didn't understand, because Tiptoft's a name and Powys is a place. So I don't know why he's Lord Tiptoft and Powys. I don't know either, because usually it's just of an area. If you're Hmm. an earl, Earl of Darby. Yeah, I mean, Lord Tiptoft of Powys might make a bit more sense. Yeah, and... But no, he's Lord Tiptoft and Powys. Maybe he thinks he's land. I don't know, that's (laughs) such a weird thing. Little John Tiptoft was born... In little 1420, <laughs> little John. He's not the nice little John. <laughs> he was born in 1427, one of five children, none of whom died. Wow. Yeah. I'm guessing all the all the other siblings were mere girls because he was described as a sole heir. Ah, mere girls. When he was 13, he went up to Oxford. And to go up to Oxford means to study there. It's not just a day trip or something. <laughs> he was up at Oxford at the same time as John Rouse. If you remember him, he's the one who so sycophantically wrote about Richard III. Oh, right. And then Richard died, and then he sycophantically wrote about Henry instead. Yeah. He was also very fulsome in his praise of Tiptoft. Quote, a man of vast erudition, unquote. Okay, does he have anything bad to say about anybody? Or is he just, I will talk about everybody nicely so I get more and more patrons? Not until we're dead, I think. That's actually <laughs> his policy. <laughs> I don't know what he said about Tiptoft after he died. But I'm assuming that he called him a man of vast erudition later in life. He's not the 13-year-old boy going up to Oxford. He's a man of vast erudition. It's actually quite rare for a son of an aristocrat to go to university without the intention of entering the church, which Tiptoff couldn't do because he was the sole heir. Yeah. It was more usual for the sons of nobles to study at one of the inns of law. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder if that was Tiptoff or was it his father's decision? I don't know. I mean, Tiptoft is a very keen scholar, as we will find out. Maybe he was a very keen scholar, but it must have been. He's, he's gone up to Oxford at the age of 13. That's not usual. Wasn't it back then, though? No, it's about 15, oh, 16. Okay. 13 is young. Hmm. I mean, now, if, if I mean, from time to time, you hear about kids going up to Oxford at the age of 13, but then their parents usually get slammed into paper for hothousing them. So, <laughs> Hothousing them? Okay, you need to explain that one. Oh, uh, sort of pummeling information in them from a young age. Into oh, them. okay. So speaking from the other side, I was supposed to be put forward 
in school, like massively, but my parents decided for my social development that I should stay in my own grade. I was bored mm. to tears. <laughs> right. Honestly, I much rather would have gone forward till I had to learn something that was actually interesting. So instead, they had to create this special program that sucked. <laughs> I hated every moment of it. I would have much rather have gone to high school early. <laughs> well, obviously, Tip Top Senior must have had the same opinion for his son. Yeah. He, he got him straight in there. Yeah, some others, namely Henry Holland, the later Duke of Exeter, went up to Oxford when he was young. But he didn't stay long for some reason. He's quite a character. I might do a cameo on him. He was a truly <laughs> horrible man. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> Tipped off stayed for three years. But it doesn't say much for, for medieval Oxford University that two of their younger students have such dodgy reputations. Yeah, you come out with very evil people. Go to Cambridge. Oh. <laughs> no, you just get spies in Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> Tiptoff was related to many people who had an interest in humanism, which he soon picked up on. But English humanism was not the same as continental humanism. On really? the continent, yeah, it was seen as a path to self-betterment, learning for learning's sake. Oh, okay. In England, it was more about statecraft. Yeah, and Greek. I remember we had that whole episode where they put in Greek and the king had to defend it. Hmm. Yeah, and some people who expected to get jobs didn't get them because they couldn't speak Greek. So. Yes. But English, yeah, English humanists studied real political issues. It's such a weird term, though. Humanism, you think, would be about being a nice person. Yeah, we still got it, haven't we? The humanities. Yeah. We're still here. Yeah, English scholars were aware of intellectual developments in the rest of Europe, thanks in part to the French wars, because wars are actually quite useful for imparting information and learning medicine and things, aren't they? Cause... I mean, people leave and flee to somewhere safer. Yes, or just fighting over there. You might meet other people that you think, Actually, that's quite interesting. That I might look into Could you that. imagine? No, hold on. I'm not going to kill you because I think you're interesting. Tell me everything you know, and then I'll kill you. Yeah, you're conquering. How does that spread knowledge? <laughs> there must have been time off. Bizarrely, <laughs> Tiptoff took his own tutor up to Oxford with him, which seems to defeat the purpose of going away to study. Maybe it was because he was so young, young he and needed he an sort adult. of doubled up as a sort of nanny type. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Because some of the girls had their governesses with them till they were in their 20s and 30s. Well, I think Catherine of Aragon sort of brought hers over. Yeah. She's a duenna. And Elizabeth kept Cat Ashley on until she passed away. Yeah. So, yeah, possibly. Well, in those times, it's sometimes the only parental figure you might have. Yes. He seems to have been quite happy with the education he got from Oxford, despite the fact that, compared to continental universities, it was way behind the times. He later wrote a letter offering some books to Oxford, in which he said, quote, Even if we have gone, for some time, to and fro openly, in a far and distant foreign land, yet, at no time, however, have you, most excellent men, been forgotten by us. Of course, I hold your, or our, most learned university in high esteem, unquote. Okay. That's a lot of commas. That's a lot of commas. For a second there, I thought you were going to say, but you have not improved. <laughs> That's where I thought that was going. Yeah, they really did like a run-on sentence. Well, the Oxford officials replied, quote, take a run up to this. Indeed, from your youth, we have never remembered other of you than as sufficiently industrious and having achieved a seemingly divine manner in affairs, unquote. So no commas at all when they replied. No. Now you've got the Oxford comma, which always seems to be too many commas. I don't like the Oxford comma. I don't use no. it. <laughs> no, I don't. And Google likes it, and so it keeps getting squiggly lines under everything. And so does Microsoft Word. It's like, it's already a pause. You're putting an and in there. That is sort of a verbal pause. So stop. Yes. Stop. Yes. <laughs> don't like it. But again, fulsome praise. Yes. From the people hoping to receive more books from this man in the future. Yeah. Seemingly divine and sufficiently in. in illustrious sufficiently I, think I might have said industrious you did say industrious either sorry. way sufficiently just sounds sufficiently. like you're just <laughs> making it yeah just a little smidge of illustriousness yeah but divine divine is a weird 
choice of words. Yes. But they are hoping that he'll give them more books, so... (laughs) Then be a bit more fulsome in your praise. We've heard the sycophantic. (laughs) They were perfect. Everything was amazing. Do that. Yeah. At the end of the 15th century, so after Tiktoff's death, the nobility were warned that they should either send their offspring to university or they would find themselves ousted from positions of power. Who advised them? The university, probably. Well, I'm just wondering if we're looking at... Either Edward the Fourth or Richard the Third. Which one was the one that pushed for no, education? The end of the, no, the end of the fifteenth century. So we're into Henry. Oh, oh, because he, what he's thinking yes. is, I don't want people coming into into the job just because they're noble. Yes, that I makes sense. I want them to know what they're doing. Yes. So go to university, learn how to do it, and then come and knock on my door and ask if there's a job. Yeah. And the catalyst for this was partly Plato's Republic, which had been discovered after the fall of Constantinople. Rediscovered rediscovered yes discovered it never went missing it just wasn't in your hands <laughs> yes man what an egotistical thing i've been really <laughs> noticing how egotistical the renaissance was like we discovered this no you didn't <laughs> no, no you really didn't no. all there just waiting for you to blunder into it <laughs> <laughs> well tiktoff definitely embraced the idea of people actually knowing what they're doing. They, he wrote a book called The Declamation of Noblesse, Ooh. in which he encompassed some of those ideas. Does that book still exist? I don't know, actually. I didn't I didn't look for it, because I thought this is a cameo episode, and it's already two parts. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of the 15th century, the university had made great progress, thanks largely to people like Thomas More, you know, podcast favourite, yep. and John Fortescue, who had written The Mirror for Princes for Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou's awful son, Edward. So they were very keen on pushing the university into the Renaissance. Kicking and screaming, I should think. You don't want it. Nobody wants to learn Greek. <laughs> In 1443, Tiptoff's father died. So little Tiptoff became a ward of Henry VI, his dad had been worth a bob or two, having risen from squire to lord, so John now became Lord Tiptoft and Powys, and he had a thousand pounds a year, which was a goodly amount, and even better, through various lucrative marriages, his family was now linked to royalty. So, nice. Yeah. The king, in need of a bit of ready cash, tried to use the income from the Tiptoft estate, in other words, Tiptoft's money, to which it, uh, the king was entitled to it during John's minority, to repay a huge loan of £11,000 to the crown from Cardinal Beaufort. Uh, sorry, how much did you just say? £11,000. Whoa. That's for an individual to lend to the king. And he had that money. Mm. He is absolutely dripping with money. No kidding. I'd have no idea, but uh, i come across it a couple of times. He helps out tipped as we'll see in a bit. Wow. And that's a lot of money. In May 1443, Beaufort was granted all the issues of the estate, excluding part of it that Tiptoff's father had sold, in what seemed to me a sort of release the clatter on your house sort of scheme. Yes. But obviously, young Tiptoff would have no say in this transaction, and obviously he'd later be left out of pocket over it as well. Mm. So this was something between the king and Cardinal Beaufort using Tiptoff's money in Tiptoff's land. Mm, that's what happens when you get wardships. Yes. Tiptoff left Oxford at this point, and I don't know whether they, he would have left anyway, or whether he, as head of the family, now had to look after mum and the sisters. But on his mother's death, she was a Joyce, by the way. I don't think we've come across a Joyce before. No. When she died, control of her portion of young Tiptoff's estate must have passed to the Royal Foundations of Eton and King's College, since this is what she had planned to do, or stroke agreed to do a year or so earlier. At Eton College and King's College were Henry VI's pet projects, so it does look as if he sort of put the pressure on her to say, yeah, well, you might send your money my way, won't you? And she, they're, lov- they're lovely buildings, come and give us a bit of money. Mm. But it did mean that Tiptoft was at risk of losing it all. In 1447, Cardinal Beaufort bequeathed 500 marks to the young Tiptoft, to cancel a debt that his father had made with him. So it just seems everybody is borrowing money from the Cardinal. 
No kidding. Tiptoft used this money to buy out his wardship of Eton and King's College. He, so he bought himself out? He bought himself out with money that Cardinal Beaufort lent him. That sounds very similar to slavery. <laughs> it does, isn't it? Well, King's College and Eton accepted this, as Cardinal Beaufort also bequeathed £1,000 each to them. Wow. To cover the shortfall in Tiptoff's prematurely ending wardships. Oh, my goodness. You, uh, he just seems like Tiptoff's fairy godmother. Yes, but at the same time, how smart does that kid have to be to be able to know, yeah, that he could buy himself out? So no wonder he was at college earlier. By the sound of it, Beaufort must have said, look, you could do this and then yes. we can sort out something. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, this all sounds as, as if Tiptoft has been exploited left, right and centre. Yes, but at the same time, he's figuring out his own way through as a kid. I'm impressed. And also, his experience was one of the better ones. Yes, true. At least he had something when he came out the other side. Yes. Although, by the sound of it, it's through his own intelligence. And he wasn't married off. No, he wasn't. Which is surprising. Yeah, I'm not sure why not. Is Henry VI still alive? Because Henry did not really like the wardships. The only wardship that we really see like him that one. being involved in was I meant the marriage wardship remember you could do oh, the right. property and the marriage huh in 1447 Tiptoft entered court and he was perhaps fortunate to have familial links to all the rival and feuding factions that led up to the Wars of the Roses because he seems to have used this fact to just keep out of it all mm. yeah I can't get involved that's my wife or that's my husband my husband <laughs> no on 3rd of April 1448, talking of wife, Tiptoff married Cecily, Duchess of Warwick, which was a huge leap in his social it standing. Social standing, yeah. How did he manage that? Was that Cardinal Beaufort stepping in again? <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, it may have been that he was a royal favourite at this time. Yeah. So and he is favourably related to everybody, but still, that's that's quite the leap. It's not like he's getting in with a minor baron or something. But it may have been a love match because this was Cecily's second marriage so she'd have had more of a A say say in whom she married. Hmm. And she chose John Tiptoft. We're we're maligning him. We know what he's done (laughs) in the future. Maybe he was still a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine this time he probably was. In 1449, Tiptoft was invested with the title of the Earl of Worcester. Although, at this point, they called him, in the patent, they called him Tip-Tot. Oh. Everybody else is having trouble with his name (laughs) as well, I think. And at the same time, Richard Neville, his brother-in-law, was made Earl of Warwick. So why was Tip-Tot made an Earl? Partly, as we've said, it's because he became the king's favourite. And partly, it seems a conscious decision to bring young blood into what was becoming an ageing nobility. Right. Also, the title was going spare. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's available. The previous earls of Worcester all died without male heir. And he was seen to be an exceptional man in many, many ways. Worcester and Warwick were seen to be the young men to watch at this time. Mm. On 29th of July, 1450, Tiptoff's wife, Cecily, died. Possibly of complications during childbirth. More than likely. God, that must have been terrifying. Yes. I'm pregnant. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, scary enough. Yeah. Without the, that hanging over you. Yeah. We don't know how upset Tiptoft was about the death of his wife, but he did keep two of her books, which in one of the sources I read implied that that meant that he was broken-hearted. And he may well have been, but I wondered, well, only two? I mean, they lived together, yes. presumably. <laughs> it sounds to me as if he chucked out all the others <laughs> rather than keeping two. Yeah. For keepsake. I don't want that. I don't want that. Oh, I'm not having that. Unless she was able to will-, will them to somebody. Maybe. Maybe they just didn't share the same taste in literature. Yeah, hers all of romance. <laughs> it was all beginning to kick off between the Lancastrians and the Yorkists. The Duke of York had just come over from Ireland, unofficially, since he hadn't been recalled. And he was the he was Tiptoff's cousin, remember? So Tiptoff was going to find it hard to keep out of it now. Yeah. Fourteen fifty one. Tiptoff sat on his first Oye and Terminate commissions. Did we decide on Oye and Terminate or Oye and Termina? We didn't. 
I don't think we did. I'm going to go with OEA and Terminate because it just sounds like it to me. Yeah. And that was the first of many. And this dealt with the aftermath of the Jack Cade rebellion. Mm. And everybody listening is like, who's Jack Cade? (laughs) I guess this is before our time. Yeah, Google it. We haven't got time to go into the Jack Cade rebellion. (laughs) It was um, Kent, I think, wasn't it, Jack Cade? Yes. They all came from Kent, yeah. (laughs) The rebellious county. I don't think it is now. YA and Terminate commissions were often quite benign, on many occasions ending with a pardon, but it had been decided to make an example of the Jack Cade rebels. Well, for how often the rebellion kept happening, and it's always in Kent. Yes. <laughs> Being gentle hasn't been working. No, no. The king himself, Henry VI, set out with two dukes, four earls, including Tiptoft, and six lords to oversee... I was about to go, justice. But you can't, people, people listening can't see me doing apostrophes in the air. <laughs> in Canterbury, eight men were hanged, drawn and quartered in a single day. But as a sign of mercy, they were allowed to be buried entire. Altogether rather than being posted separately. But how is that mercy? Mercy is before they're dead. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. What they're saying is all the hunks of meat that have been hacked from their bodies are going to be shoved in the same box. That yes, doesn't sound merciful No, that's to not me. merciful at all. Uh, ah. It would have been a consideration, because do you remember we saw in John Devere's episode that the first thing he did when he came back and got his title back was reunite his dad and his brother's heads with their bodies? Yes, I think it goes back to you have to be whole in order to be brought back during the resurrection. But then people liked being chopped up in bits, didn't they? So that they could be next to as many churches as possible. Yeah, I don't I don't understand it either. But then I don't mm. see it anywhere in the Bible saying that you have to be whole and not burnt in order to go to heaven. So I, I don't know where that well, came from. In the pictures you see in cathedrals and things of the powering of the souls. Yes. They're all whole people. Yes. <laughs> so... Maybe that's what people are thinking of. I don't then know. why have yourself chopped it? Anyway. Anyway, who can get into these people's heads? And saints are obviously in heaven and there are bits of them everywhere. Yes. Yes. Yeah, tiny little shards. If anybody knows, let us know, because this is very confusing. The executions carried on as the king and his entourage travelled on to Blackheath, later to be made famous for the Cornish Rebellion. <laughs> and it was an exceptionally brutal time, so quite a baptism of fire for Mr. Tiptoft. Oh. And was this really the work of a king who later became a saint? Yeah. Did he become a saint? Wasn't he just tried to become a saint several times and the Pope kept saying no? Everyone said he was very saintly. Yes, I'm pretty sure that the Pope said no. Uh, yeah, he's probably thinking, yeah, but what, did you, what were you up to in Kent? Yes. June 1451, he was on an Oye and Termine commission to try the men accused of murdering the Earl of Suffolk. And that was fa- the father of the dull John de la Pole that we saw in episode three. <laughs> <laughs> and the grandfather of the rather more interesting John de la Pole. <laughs> Not that John de la Pole. No, Suffolk had been sent into exile, but while he was crossing the channel, the crew of the ship suddenly turned on him and cut his head off. But strangely, none of these men were convicted. Well, how do you determine who did what? If everybody keeps mum. Possibly the powers that were wanted to avoid too close an inspection of the incident in case links to high places were found. Because ah. they didn't really want him back, did they? No, they did not. And it might have been ordered by the king. Yes. Yes. The saintly king. <laughs> the saintly king. <laughs> also in June, Tip Toft married again. Elizabeth was not such a good bet socially as his first wife had been, but now Tiptoff had an earldom of his own. He didn't really need it anymore. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> but she did come with quite respectable inheritance and land. It's not known how they met, except that she lived in Sussex, so he may have come across her while he was training across the county, sentencing and executing rebels. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Something to tell the grandchildren. <laughs> That's not an attractive thing. I don't think that would have drawn me to him. No, I'm just trying to think how they explained it to other people, saying, well, how did you meet? Oh, well, you know, funny story. I was executing people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and our eyes met across a bloodied square. Gallows. Ooh. 
Anyway, before the year was out, she was pregnant. Tiptoff spent the rest of the year trying and sentencing others accused of unrest, since the sense of rebellion was spreading. Because Henry wasn't usually brutal, and it thought it was the presence of the Earl of Shrewsbury, who was a notoriously severe man, hmm. which bumped up the brutality. So he was in this group of nobles clomping around the place, executing people. And uh, yeah. But you do get the feeling that Tiptoff might have been taking notes. Yeah. Mm. Writing his thesis to be shown later. Yes, part two. <laughs> <laughs> In 1542, the political situation in the country was falling into anarchy. The king called his nobles together, including Tiptoft, under the guise of discussing the defence of Calais against the French, but really to discuss the situation with the Duke of York. In March, Henry and York faced each other at the head of large armies, and York agreed to stand down in return for the arrest of the Duke of Somerset. And Tiptoft was among those who negotiated this compromise. Although, as it turned out, Henry didn't arrest Somerset. Didn't want to, is his No, he's my friend. That's my buddy. Yeah. My special friend. <laughs> yes, quite possibly. <laughs> in April of that year, Tiptoft was made treasurer at the exceptionally young age of 24. And this must have been quite an event because we have documentation of a humanist in Italy mentioning it. And as we've learnt in our Patreon episodes, Italy wasn't the slightest bit interested in what England no, was up to. not at all. The position of treasurer eventually morphed into that of prime minister. And in fact, I've written tiptoe here. <laughs> I think that must be predictive text as so I changed it for some reason. Tiptoft was the youngest man to hold this position alongside William Pitt, the younger. Oh. So he must have impressed the king, so he yes. around killing people. Ew. Since he trusted him with that role at a time when the financial situation in the country was absolutely dire. And in fact, he was appointed treasurer three times, because the post had a limited timescale of two or three years. So he must have done a good job the first time to yeah. be asked again. But still. And it also meant he was on the Royal Council. In July, Tiptoff set off again with the king to sit on Oye and Termine commissions to quell the unrest brought about by the Duke of York's antics. And this time it was in the West Country, the Midlands and Wales. So, more executions. Jeez. Oh, 1st of September, Tiptoff's second wife, Elizabeth, died. Along with their son, John. And there's a bit of controversy about this since Tiptoff retained his wife's land and properties. Maybe that was a keepsake, like those two books. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, goodness. But when you said there's a controversy, I'm like, did he kill them? No, no, no. It's a financial controversy. Mm. Because the next in line would have been her sister if, they'd, if she'd had no oh, children. Oh, right. But the Tiptoff's reasoning was that the son inherited from Elizabeth, and then that would naturally go on to the boy's father, Tiptoff. Ah. But that wouldn't be the case if Elizabeth had died in childbirth and the child had died or was still born. Yes. Because that would wipe the slate clean. Unfortunately, it would be as if the lad hadn't existed. Hmm. So, hmm. Later, when Tiptoff had been disgraced, this was brought up as a, an example of very dodgy dealing. Mm-hmm. However, Elizabeth's family seemed, seemed to have kept quite cordial relationships with Tiptoff. So well, either they were very forgiving or they were frightened of him. Or maybe in these troubled times, having a friend who was so close to the king was quite useful. Until the king changed, obviously. Yes. I have... But they wouldn't know that was going to happen. No. It's... After this, Tiptoff didn't marry for another 15 years. Because he'd lost two wives and a son in just three years. So maybe he couldn't stand the heartache of going through it all again. 15 years, though. Hmm. That's a long time. Maybe he just didn't meet the right lady. Maybe. With a rapidly spiralling political situation, the need to get the territories in France back that had been lost by Somerset, particularly Gascony, and the dire straits of England's finances, it was vital that money be found from somewhere. Tiptoft and the Earl of Warwick were put in charge of screwing money out of the clergy. <laughs> that's, never, that's never easy, is it? <laughs> You're not pulling badges, they're screwing money out of the clergy. <laughs> Tiptoff gave a speech at the Convocation of Canterbury. That's a collection of bishops, deans, abbots, etc. in the area around Canterbury. And his speech was so rousing that the Archbishop granted the government tenths. 
and we've seen tents before. That's a bit of tithes, really, isn't it? 10% yes. of the worth of movable goods, though, tents. Yes. And I guess that means the movable goods belonging to the clergy themselves? Would it be their own personal property? Or... Or the church? The church's Trump? movable goods. I'm not sure. The church did have wool. If if you look into the churches, they had land to support themselves, so they would be farming sheep, farming beef. They had a lot so of land, yeah. They would have movable goods. Mm. Hmm. Tiptoft himself contributed £2,300, which shows he was doing pretty well for himself financially. Yes. It's not 11000 but... <laughs> no, no, it's... <laughs> But I, I didn't come across anything that implied that he was sort of creaming it off the top or anything. He wasn't, hmm. he wasn't dishonest in that way. I don't no, he would be actually. No embezzlement. No, he seems that sort of decent person who wouldn't do anything except dodgy kill. like that, except kill people. <laughs> yes, but you can. It was judicial killing. You can justify it to yourself, can't you? Ugh. The coffers of the country were doing much better under Tiptoft as treasurer, because in November 1452 to March 53, the revenue had doubled compared to the previous six months. I mean, that's a huge leap in a very short time. Yeah. So he was good at his job. January 53, Tiptoft was recorded as a witness to King Henry VI accepting his half-brothers Edmund and Jasper Tudor as his legitimate siblings. Oh. That seems ages ago, doesn't it? Yes, I don't it mean does. Them, For I mean, us. Yes. <laughs> Jasper's episode. Day one. Yes, we, well, day were, two. Um, we were novices then, weren't we? Now, of course, we got the hang of it. <laughs> you say that? Those people would realise when they saw us a few minutes ago <laughs> saying, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. <laughs> Why is there no sound? I just fixed <laughs> this. <laughs> I can't get it to work. <laughs> we do exactly the same thing every single time, but we get a different result every <laughs> time <sighs> computers anyway the french wars seemed to be going well but in july the earl of shrewsbury who was leading the campaign was killed in battle and his death pretty much brought english plans in france to an end 21st july 1453 a major charter of privileges allowing her autonomous administration of her estate was granted to queen margaret bonjou witnessed by tiptoft and this was an indication that Henry was already not feeling up to the responsibilities of a king. And it was in this month that he suffered a complete breakdown. The fact that he recognised it is better than most kings. Yes, although... He could have been pushed. This charter of privileges, would he... I don't know, maybe he was... Maybe it was shoved under his nose and told to sign that. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure how much he was part of it. The council, of which Tiptoff was part automatically gained greater power as Henry's faculties went into sad decline. And the fact that Tiptoff had no family meant he was able to throw himself entirely into the life of a government official. And although the position of the council became stronger with Henry's weakness, in reality, much of what they decided was being ignored by the Roman... Roman? I don't get Roman from... <laughs> Ignore... <laughs> ignored by the noble families, as many sought to use this political situation to fight their own local disputes. The War of the Roses went into full swing. Tiptoff had to decide where his allegiances lay, because he owed his post as treasurer to Henry, but he had family links to York. But he seems to have put off that decision for the time being. <laughs> October 1453, a meeting at which Tiptoff was present took place, to which York was invited, and it's thought it may have been that Tiptoff ins insisted that York be invited. So he might have been trying to bridge the gap between the two parties both for the country and for the good of his own family ties, I suppose. Yeah. It's a pity that didn't come off, isn't it? Yeah. It have changed history. Tiptoff was present in the Star Chamber in November when York promised that he was the king's man. I don't know if he had his fingers crossed behind his back. <laughs> <laughs> and yet another meeting in December saw the majority of the council vote against giving York any more power. And this majority included Tiptoff, so York won't be pleased with him for that one, I wouldn't think. Cousin. I suppose that's why they used to call it the Cousins' War. I mean, they really were yeah. all cousins, weren't all they? All cousins. The Lords were aware of the King's condition, but the Commons was not. And on 11th February 1454, it was given to Tiptoff to explain to them 
situation. He did this in the refectory of the Abbey of Reading, where he said the king could not attend for, quote, certain reasons, unquote. Certain reasons? <laughs> That's helpful. Any, yeah. Did they say anything? Just certain reasons. Certain reasons. So the, the commons either knew more about it than they were meant to, or that they'd let on, or they were left just as baffled as before, I think. Oh, <laughs> I don't know whether he was meant to say more. That's what he came up with. Tiptoft was among the 26 signatories empowering York as the king's lieutenant to hold and dissolve Parliament. So, back in York's good books for that one. On the 22nd of March, John Kemp, who was Archbishop of Canterbury and Lord Chancellor, died. And this meant that with the king incapacitated and Kemp dead, Tiptoft now held the highest ranking position in England. Wow. Yeah. That's quite something, isn't it, for someone most people have barely heard yeah. of. Yeah. And if they have, it's not this that they've heard of him for. Jeez. 3rd of April, York said that he would only assume the role of protectorate if he had the backing of the Lords, and if they, in something that was to be called the Continual Council, would back him. And one by one, each of the Lords made their excuses. Some said, <laughs> I'm too old. Some said, I'm too ill. One said he was too young, and even younger, he said, in intellect. <laughs> So I'm too young and I'm too stupid. <laughs> Some just said oh they were busy. Goodness, that's awesome. That's my excuse. I'm too dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Only two, one of which was John Tiptoft, agreed, on condition that the Commons were involved as well. So very much in York's good books now. Wow. Because he really, really wow. probably was too busy. This continual council effectively became a triumvirate of the Duke of York, protector, the Earl of Salisbury, Chancellor, and John Tiptoft, Treasurer. One of the things this council funded, which was quite interesting, I thought, was a group of Greek scholars who had fled the sack of Constantinople. And this, seemingly on the urging of Tiptoft, obviously thought, well, I'd quite like to have a chat with them. They sound an interesting bunch. On the 3rd of April, Tiptoft was made Keeper of the Sea and was given the task of ridding the Channel of pirates. This problem had been exacerbated by the loss of Normandy. And Tiptoft developed quite a reputation as being the one to go for with any seafaring problems. I don't know why. As far as I could tell, he had no links with the sea whatsoever. I don't even know he'd ever been on a boat. He's never seen a boat. <laughs> What's a boat? I, think, I guess he was just very charismatic. I think he was one of these sort of, don't worry, leave it all to me type people. And they can do it. Yeah. I don't, I don't ever want to be one of those people. <laughs> don't give me something I've never done before what's wrong with you <laughs> well, he, must, he must have done a good job because later in 1462 when the Yorkist regime needed to resume naval operations to stop the invasion and to protect Calais the man they once again turned to was Tiptoft <sighs> under this triumvirate England was better governed than when the king was well enough to well, take charge the king if taking charge it. was actually what he did <laughs> he didn't do any of it so it seemed to be a bit of a a few halcyon days, really, when they were running the country. They actually did a good job of it. Well, from what we understand, from my point of view, from everything we've learned, he was a disaster, and anybody else would have been better. It's a pity they couldn't have kept those three people in place. Yes. And Henry just said, I'll I'm, sit back. Yeah, I I'll do the. I'll do the opening, opening of Parliament and walking yeah. about with the mace and things. You, you just run the country. Just become a constitutional monarchy. Yeah, like and the one we got now. Yes. Yeah. When the king regained his sanity, though, and Somerset was released from jail, justifiably miffed since she hadn't actually been charged with anything, war between the two parties seemed inevitable, and it was time for Tiptoff to decide which side he was on. Henry sent a delegation, including Tiptoff, to the Duke of York. And York decided that his best bet was to hold on to the delegation to buy himself enough time to get closer to where the king was. So Tiptoft is effectively being held prisoner by York now. Oh, God. And in a way, it made it easier for Tiptoft since he was able to keep <laughs> keep out of the Battle of St Albans. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I will gladly go. Uh, could you make sure that my minstrel is sent to me? Thank you. Uh, no, it's funny you should say that. Really? <laughs> He's very keen on music, as we will see. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> But it meant that he, if he didn't, if he wasn't at the Battle of St Albans, he still didn't have to show which side he was on. 
This is a bit of luck. It's at St Albans that we see why the Earl of Warwick became the famous one and tipped off the Earl of Worcester less so because Warwick led York's troops into battle and tipped off... Didn't. <laughs> I wish people could watch your face while you're doing this. Half of the fun is the expressions. <laughs> It's only 3rd of May, Henry was taken back to London, and York, Warwick, and Salisbury now held the reins, but Henry was king. So we've pretty much got our what we wanted, except that Tiptoft isn't part of it now. <laughs> <laughs> Get out! Okay. His wishes had to be considered, and in the procession through the city that followed the battle, Warwick carried the royal lance and tipped off the royal sword. Oh! Was it point up or point down? I don't know, but I, I would be quite... On edge, if I were Henry, walking between the two of them. <laughs> He's probably <laughs> pointing it towards the king. <laughs> yes. Go on, just keep moving, keep moving. Poke, poke. <laughs> Tiptoff then sat on two of the five committees set up to look into the many problems the country was facing. His committee looked at the mismanagement of the king's finances and the chronic shortage of gold and silver, which was holding back trade, which is sensible. I mean, he was a treasurer. But at this point, it seems either that Tiptoff was exhausted or he could see that war was inevitable and he just wanted out so he didn't have to choose a side or he was seeking redemption for all those executions he'd helped bring about on those OIA and Terminate commissions. Probably not the last one, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he set off to the Holy Land and, here you go, he took a choir with him. <laughs> Twenty singers he took. How old were they? Were they boys? I don't know. Most of the choirs were boys. Yeah. When is it assume you'd have mixed voices? Possibly. Because we're talking about polyphony, so... Yeah. I don't think many people took their choir with them on a holiday. No. <laughs> I'm thinking of the horrible histories with the gorgeous Georgians. And they take somebody's land away. And he's like, orchestra, play something sad. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking of. He's just got them coming behind as a soundtrack. <laughs> On the where am I? On the 18th of November, 1457, Tiptoft obtained an Optinet Lycentium, or permission from Rome to visit the Holy Sepulchre, and he would be passing through Italy since the Holy Land package tour set off from Venice. Package tour. <laughs> It seems. It really seems like it. He, en route, he was given the task of offering the king's obedience to Pope Calixtus III. Oh, you know, while he's passing, <laughs> drop in, say hello, yes. give him my love. We know a lot about this voyage to the Holy Land, not because Tiptoft himself tells us. If he wrote a journal, it's now been lost. But an Italian, a nephew of Francesco Sforza, Ooh. wrote a book about it, in which Tiptoft is mentioned several times. And we know that on the 14th of May, the Venetian Senate agreed to him engaging a man called Loredano as his patrono, personal guide. So we have a detailed, very interesting itinerary. We don't have that for many people. He must have made quite a splash. I think he did. He seems to wherever he goes. Wow. He's quite a forceful personality, I think. Huh. We have a very detailed and interesting itinerary of his voyage from Venice to Jaffa. Which goes as follows. 17th of May, he left Venice. 24th, 25th May, overnight stay in what's now Dubrovnik. 28th of May, a huge storm, which was only placated by throwing the names of saints into the sea. I, I'm sorry. Oh, by screaming out their names. Or are you literally writing it down and throwing it? I got the impression it was writing it down and throwing it. But yeah, you could, maybe you do just shout, George, Alban. <laughs> Razor. <laughs> Sounds like when a mother of 12 is calling one of her kids. Yes. <laughs> You're, you know your name. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I thought it was bits of paper, but who knows. 2nd or 3rd of May, they put in at what's now Durez to repair the ship, so they took some damage in the storm. 7th or 8th of June, they stopped at Crete, and passengers were forbidden from disembarking because there was an epidemic of plague. Oh, yeah, don't go. Don't just, just stay. Well, unfortunately, some of them did. Either they thought, well, oh, I can't not come all this way and not see Crete. Oh, my goodness. 
Or they didn't get the memo, I don't know. Or the rats got onto the ship. 10th oh, of June, they were heading for Rhodes when they were chased by pirates. Of course they were! <laughs> and they only managed to get rid of them when the captain shouted to them that there was plague aboard. I don't know whether there was plague aboard. There could be. There, there was plague be. aboard. I'm going to go with plague. It had plague. It was plague. a good way of getting rid of them. Plague was everywhere. <laughs> 10th, 13th of June, they were the guests of the Grand Master of the Order of St. John, and they got to see the execution of some Turks. Oh, lovely. Which I believe is no longer on excursions of cruises these yeah. days. No, gosh, yeah. why? Why? People sucked. <laughs> yeah, as if he hadn't seen enough. I suppose the Grand Master probably said, we've got some going on, do you want to look? I don't wish to be rude, so That's I better... That's so uncomfortable. Okay, yeah. okay. On the way back, incidentally, they stopped at Rhodes and witnessed more executions. Rhodes seems to be the execution capital of the area. 250 <sighs> of them, some of whom were impaled. So just hold on to that thought. Oh, mm. oh, oh, This might oh. become relevant later. Oh, don't tell me he decides to start impaling people. Well, apparently some of these executions had to be delayed because some of the prisoners escaped on a homemade raft and they had to be recaptured. I just thought, the desperation, oh. these poor people on their raft desperately paddling away. and then they're... Honestly, if I was going to be impaled, I'd probably just go drown yeah. myself. Oh, oh. Anyway. Happier note? Oh, no, it's not. I've just read on. <laughs> 17th of June, Cyprus. Several of the passengers died from disease. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, sorry, I should have read on before I've said happier notes. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's the plague picked up from Crete or many of the other diseases you can get. 20th of June, they arrived in Jaffa. Presumably bringing disease How many are left? <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah. Hey, Jaffa, you're okay. You're not anymore. <laughs> they had to wait offshore for safe passage from the officials. But this was something of a money-making scheme. I don't know if it was a sort of checking for disease scheme, but the, the officials had them over a barrel because if they didn't accept the safe passage, they'd be taking them to slavery. So, you'll vent. Oh. And there was a lot of resentment about this petty bureaucracy, not least because it put the Christians in a subservient position to the Saracens, which they didn't yeah. like. No. No, but at the same time, they're getting better treatment from the Muslims than the Muslims would get if it was Christians. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When they arrived in Jaffa, they held a mass, where presumably Tiptoff's choir finally paid for their passage, I suppose. Oh my goodness. They, they, I found this interesting. They didn't have much time in the Holy Land. The officials of Jaffa only allowed the galleys to stay for 13 days. It took two days each way to get to the Holy City. So having spent all that time getting there, they'd only have nine days to explore Jerusalem, as well as Bethlehem, the River Jordan, the Dead Sea, and all the other treats they might want to catch while they were there. Which is okay for now when the flight is only a certain yeah, number of hours. Yeah, a long but time to is... get there. This must be an incredibly yeah. hectic schedule. Could you imagine? But on the plus side, when as soon as you stepped into Jerusalem, all your sins were washed away. So probably worth the effort. Hmm. Oh. And Tiptoff has one or two. But although you say it's judicial, <laughs> it was judicial. Tiptoff saw all the usual sights. On the first night, they went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But found it was closed. Imagine you've got all that way and it's closed. <laughs> it's annoying enough when you go... To go to I mean, in Glastonbury, they've got a very strange hippie idea of running businesses, because <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of the shops there are run by sort of really quite um, savvy hippies. But you do get signs up saying "popped out back soon." <laughs> when? When did you leave? When are you coming back? <laughs> when you run all the way to Glastonbury to get something, that's very frustrating. <laughs> But probably not as frustrating as going all the way there to find the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was closed. They did see Lydda, Lida, L-Y-D-D-A, where St. George was martyred. Arimathea, where Joseph came from, who brought the Holy Grail to Glastonbury. He probably found it was closed. <laughs> Popped out for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Bethlehem and Jericho. That's why you can't find the Holy Grail in, <laughs> in Glastonbury, is because they were closed. <laughs> He asked if he could go to the place where the shepherds saw the angels of the Lord. But apparently that excursion wasn't part of the package. <laughs> You'd have thought he'd be able to pay his way, but that's because it's just not the time. But one interesting event, on the 27th of June, he dubbed a couple of people and made them Knights of the Holy Sepulchre. 
right is he to do that? <laughs> Where he hasn't even been in the place. How did? I mean, we've seen before okay. that okay. knights can dub other knights. I think, um, and they can get in trouble for it, mm, but because they weren't given permission from their lord. But in a different country, yes, very strange. We don't know Tiptoft's view of this journey, but the Italians, whose diaries we have, were shocked at the condition of the holy places. They were in ruins, they said. And isn't it, we also have a detailed account by the bursar of Eton College, who was also there. So everybody else seems to have written a diary except Tiptoff. We do hear that Tiptoff held mass on several occasions. Well, he brought the choir, he might as well. <laughs> But the, yeah, this was the time, if you remember back to our very first episode, that England was leading the field in polyphonic singing. On the way back, it was reported, Tiptoff dismissed the pilgrim's galley he was on to evade capture by Genoese pirates. And he picked up another galley as a lighter, faster one. Which opened up the question to me about his motives for changing ships. Was he self-effacingly leaving the other pilgrims assuming that he was the main target, and if he got off, they'd be left alone. Or did he just not want to get caught <laughs> up in it? Did he just leg it? <laughs> I'm going to go with option two. He's just legging it. <laughs> but what happened to the choir? <laughs> oh, no. I don't know. I don't know whether the choir went with him. They better. Whether they're st- still standing outside the Holy Sepulchre waiting to be let in, I don't know. And we may think that going to the Holy Land was just a thing that noblemen did at this time. But in fact, no. Tiptoft was unique. No other English nobles did the journey in the mid-1400s. When Tiptoft got back to Venice, he made a life-changing decision. Despite having been treasurer, having sat on various important commissions, having been by the king's side in many Oye and Terminate courts, he decided he wasn't going home. Really? He was going to stay in the land of Leonardo da Vinci and Piccolo della Mirandola and Michelangelo rather than going back to the land of, well, who? Yeah. And there may have been two reasons for Tiptoff to decide to stay. First, he was a scholar, a humanist, a classicist. So where better to be? And secondly, the War of the Roses were kicking off. Why would anyone want to be in England at this time? Never. He first studied at the ancient University of Padua, although we're not sure what he studied since the documents have been lost, possibly law. And then he went on to Ferrara to study Latin and Greek. And he became a patron of scholars too, because he could afford it. He was a patron of another Englishman studying in Italy, John Free. And he was way down the social ladder than Tiptoft. And yet they were friends, as well as patronised and patronising. Because John Free dedicated his translation of Synesius's In Praise of Baldness to Tiptoft. The earl was going a bit, a bit thin on top. <laughs> They'd have had to have been good friends for him to have got away with that, I think. Yes. But that seems to be a trait of TikTok. <laughs> he admired learning and he didn't let social snobbery get in the way of cultivating friendships that he, with people he thought were going to be interesting. He has a lot of good points, TikTok, I think. Some major, major, major bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> and TikTok apparently stayed in the Medici villa, which would later become home to... Pico de la Mirandola and Ficino and all that gang. And later, when he got back to England, he built an Italian-inspired home at Bassingbourne in Cambridgeshire, which may have been partly based on this villa. But it's not there anymore, sadly. It's only discernible through crop markings. Which is a pity. Mm-hmm. 1461, Tiptoff went on a mammoth book-buying spree, taking him to Padua, Florence and Rome. And while waiting for some books to be transcribed, he explored Florence on foot and alone, just wondering where the fancy took him. Oh, so he he didn't just buy books, he was ordering them to be written. Yeah. Wow, that would be costly, could you imagine? He's got the money. Yes, but, true. But it does mean he's got a bit of time to kill. I'm just wandering around cities on your own was not something that noblemen did. No. But he did. In Rome, he met the Pope. And the Pope, by all accounts, well, most of the English accounts, was wildly (laughs) impressed by him and wept for joy when he heard his oration. Oh. And I'm not quite sure whether Uh... Italians thought he was exceptionally erudite and scholarly or whether he was exceptionally erudite and scholarly for an Englishman. That might be possible. They had a... Maybe he wasn't weeping for joy. (laughs) 
it possibly. While Tiptoff was in Rome, the Pope contacted the English king about yet another crusade, and Henry tried to get a delegation together to talk to the Pope, but from what I could gather, it was very confusing, no one really wanted to go. And payments were made to various nobles, including Tiptoff, but the delegation never took off. And the Pope saw this as being a symptom of a feeble king, and at this point he switched his allegiance to the Orchists. And in fact, the papal legate met the Earls of Salisbury, Warwick and March, and that's the future Edward IV, while they were hiding out in Calais, shouting at Edward Woodville. <laughs> Which we've probably come across in his episode. The Earls made all the right noises about the Crusade, and the legate came back to Rome and made all the right noises about the Yorkists. So, you know, pretty good for Edward. He's got the Pope on his side. Wow. Tiptoft may now have seen which way it was all going and decided to head that way himself. And we know from letters to and from Tiptoft that he hadn't gone to Italy to bury his head in the sand and pretend nothing was happening in England. He was keeping abreast of the political situation back home. But nothing that was happening there seemed to entice him back. Who could blame him? And we can read a personal letter by Giovanni de' Medici to his representative in Venice that Tiptoft was staying in Italy until everything was more stable in England. So he was smart. Yes. 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 And the reason de' Medici knew Tiptoft was because Tiptoft had sent him music. And that seemed to be quite a big sort of bonding thing for Tiptoft. He sent, sent, sent people music and you're, you've got a sort of inroad. Okay. And he had this mission to introduce the new English music to Italy. Maybe he was sick of hearing how England was artistically backward and thought he'd retaliate by showing it was inevitably, 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 ah, oh, inevitive, innovative, innovative in music. Huh. You got this. <laughs> If Tiptoft had fully gone over to the Yorkist at this point, he must have had a nasty shock when he learnt that the Duke of York and the Earl of Salisbury and their sons had all been killed in the Battle of Wakefield, or soon after. But in late 1461, Edward wrote to Tiptoft, recalling him to England, and it seems unlikely he would have done so if he'd not already known that Tiptoft had gone over to the Yorkist. He's not, gonna, he's not shot in the dark, I don't think. No. And it was probably only the fact that he was out of the country that enabled Tiptoft to do this, because I was thinking... If he'd stayed in England, he'd have had to have looked at Henry VI's eager little round face. Would he have been able to do it? Uh, from his later actions? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he then went to Florence, where he was in contact with the Medici family. And the Medici Bank were very important financiers of Edward IV, because we've heard many times that it was Edward's non-payment that brought the bank down. He was given six score thousand crowns. Sorry. Six score, thousand crowns. How many is score? Twenty. Twenty? So 120,000 pounds. Crowns. Crowns. It seems an odd way of putting it, but a bit ridiculously convoluted, doesn't it? But I couldn't work yeah. out how a young and impoverished king in a backward country was able to borrow sums of that amount, unless it was tipped off to persuaded them. But still. It would explain his detour to Florence. And they might be impressed with the word of the ex-treasurer of England. I don't know. They're not going to get that back. No. No, I mean, this might be this <laughs> might be the moment where the bank kicks in. But Tiptoft had the perfect disguise because he was the English scholar who travelled around Italy attending lectures and buying books. So he could probably get away with all this sort of surreptitious politicking. Wow. September 61, Tiptoft was back in England, finally. And despite his long absence, he immediately became one of the top men in the Yorkist regime. Although this may have been partly because so many of them were dead, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. On the 1st of November, Tiptoff joined the council with a salary of 200 marks. And most of the councillors were new men who'd served the Yorkist in fighting. So he may have been one of the few who'd had political experience. Wow. And he was made a Knight of the Garter in the same year. Along with Warwick, Warwick's uncle, Falkenberg, Tiptoft was in charge of strengthening Edward's regime. And their role was to put down Lancastrian opposition, defend against foreign attack, enforce law and order, and possibly more importantly, give Edward's court an air of authority, as if it was meant to be there. So 
tip-tops back in the saddle as soon as he got back from Italy. I was thinking, actually, he's been to quite a lot of very fancy Italian courts. He's been to the Medici court and he's been to the Pope. Could you imagine going back to the English court after that? Well, we know that Edwards was more lavish than it had been. Maybe it was tip-toft giving him a few ideas about this is what they do in Italy. He thought, yeah, yeah. that sounds good. <laughs> We're pretty pathetic here. <laughs> it's awfully dark here. <laughs> There's a lot of white marble in Italy. Yes. Yes, mind you, it does have the sun bouncing off it. That probably helps. Yes. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> You're the king. Get rid of the clouds. We don't need this much rain. He was appointed Lord High Constable of England in February 62. And Tiptoff and Warwick were in the highest office of those who were to try treason cases. It hadn't escaped them that Henry IV and Henry V had executed rebel peers and had gone on to establish the Lancastrian regime... Henry VI had not executed peers, just commoners, and had suffered constant revolts from discontented nobles. So they felt there was a lesson to be learnt from that. Oh. And here it comes. <laughs> oh. A messenger came to Edward IV telling him that he carried letters from conspirators, the most prominent being John de Vere and his son Aubrey, the father and brother of our John de Vere. They were addressed to Henry VI. These letters also said that Jasper Tudor was planning to invade from Brittany. Which he probably was. <laughs> he was. <laughs> Four de Vere's, the Earl and his oldest and two younger sons, were locked in the tower under Tiptoff's constableship. Aubrey de Vere was, ti was tired. Aubrey de Vere probably was. Aubrey de Vere was tried and executed first, then a series of non-peers, and then John de Vere. And it's thought that he was left till last because he was a popular figure. And so it was thought best to make the whole case watertight before he was brought in. And Walkworth, who's a chronicler, said that, quote, high treason was laid to them. And then afterward, they were brought before the Earl of Worcester and judged by law Padau, unquote. Law Padau is Paduan law. So was Paduan law even legal in England? There was... A huge concern that Tiptoff was trying to bring in Paduan law to override English law. Oh. Even later, when we hear about some really awful things that he does, right at the end, people are still saying, and he was trying to bring in Paduan law. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the worst. The man's a monster. <laughs> uh... Another fear was that Tiptoff's role as constable was being extended to cases of high treason, and this meant that he had the right to rule over for a case and decide the punishment. The defendant no longer had the right of trial by jury or trial by his peers. And we saw in Bray's episode that everything that took away from the right to have your case heard by a jury, even with the corruption of the jury system, was shocking to the English and seen as foreign. Hmm. The English are proud of their common law. It allowed scope for mercy, particularly since juries were made up of local men. Right, who knew the people. Not always keen to punish people, yeah. Yeah. And when you're talking about nobles being tried by their peers, that's their friend. Yes. But presumably the thinking behind this new regime was, could peers be trusted to make the right decision when it came to someone like John de Vere, a popular and otherwise entirely law-abiding man? Uh... So, no? Well, get tipped off in. Yeah. Correct procedure was very important. Cases were sometimes thrown out because of a mistake in the paperwork, as we saw in Margaret Cabell's episode when they got the name of one of the defendants wrong. And in fact, it went further than that. Richard II passed a law in 1380 to say that the constable only had jurisdiction over things that pertained to arms or war within the kingdom. That cannot be touched by common law. Well, Tiptoff could have claimed that the quelling of the Lancastrians, who, let's face it, had planned an invasion should be considered as war. But these people were tried as traitors in their own country. This should have been a case for common law. So Tiptoff seemed to be becoming an incy bit tyranty. Yeah. You're, is this the start? He's taking over roles that really aren't his. <laughs> yeah. And it seems that Aubrey de Vere was hanged and disemboweled, but John de Vere was merely beheaded. So I guess that was because there'd been such an outcry if he'd been treated in that way. Because Walkworth, the chronicler, went on to say, quote, most people were sorry, unquote. So he's not making friends and influencing people, really. No. 
It was not that the punishments were harder than people were used to, apart from Aubrey perhaps, but that Tiptoff had no jurisdiction to do this, and yet the king seemed to be sanctioning it. The message that was being sent out was don't mess with the constable and don't mess with the king. Huh. Edward's been described as proto-Machiavellian, meaning that sometimes a ruler needs to do something harsh to keep order in the land, and being soft on traitors only needs to break down in law and order, which is worse for everyone in the long run. But Tiptoft was beginning to be hated. He's not yet become the most hated man in England. Not yet, but that was to come. <laughs> it's on the way! And it will come next week. <laughs> wow. Because this is a cameo episode, and part one has been over an hour. <laughs> <laughs> He started off so promisingly. He really does. He's very much a man of two halves. Yeah. Yes. wonder what happened. Part two. We'll find out. Yep. Yes, because we know how keen the, the Tudors are on psychological probing. Yeah. 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 So don't bank on we'll find out why he turns out how no. he does. But... <laughs> so we'll see you next week for the next bit. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.